clubhouse. I've always been so righteous, living by my good values, oppressed by them. I think what I did was more about me rejecting myself than Michael. I'm timid. I'm safe. Part of me wants to be dangerous. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast. Tonight we're talking about episode two of The Undoing, The Missing. As all the episodes were, it was written by David E. Kelly and directed by Suzanne Beer. And make sure you stick around to the end of tonight's episode, because once Caroline and I are done talking about episode two, we have a fantastic interview with Michael Devine, who plays Detective Paul O'Rourke in The Undoing. You know Michael from a million different things. He's been on TV, been a working actor for years. He has a fantastic story uh, that I don't even want to spoil. I want you guys to hear it. His road to acting is unlike any you've ever heard. And he was a fantastic guest and just a wonderful time speaking with him. So definitely stick around to the end of the episode and we can't wait for you to hear our interview with michael devine man we are into it now we are in the thick of it now caroline what did you think about this episode really surprised that we managed to get this far in the plot in only the second episode which makes me so excited that there must be so much more to come i was looking at initial listener feedback about the show and about the podcast and one person said something that really struck me it can't be hugh grant right it can't be jonathan as the murderer it just seems too too much information too much evidence against him too early on and i totally appreciate that like that's kind of my knee-jerk reaction too is they've painted him to look so guilty so fast that you know it feels like a classic bait and switch but also there's only six hours of this so you know at, by the end of tonight's episode we're already one third of the way through the entire thing so maybe that is the twist maybe the twist is there is no twist and jonathan really did do it I, you know <laughs> how would you feel if that was it that if we get to the end and they're like and jonathan did it just as you would have thought at the beginning well if that's all it is that would be very disappointing if there is some if there are some twists and turns and you get back to that in the end you know if all of a sudden sudden they introduce like well actually it turns out that there was this person and there was this person and then in the end it comes back to but actually it really was jonathan that i wouldn't mind but if it's just six hours of yeah motherfucker really did do it here's more evidence that he did it oh yeah he really did do it yeah here's another episode of more evidence that makes him look guilty as fuck but i don't think it's going to be that i think tonight's episode already started to sow the doubts of it which i i want to get into grace and grace's memories and grace's recollections that she's oh having my goodness mike yeah. they are like a little bit like jarring like i can't figure out if things are her imagination if they're flashbacks, if they're like authentic memories, or are they her sitting there and crafting what she thinks that situation must have looked like? And in some of them, and when near to the end of the episode, I swear it was flashes of both where you were like, well, I think that was a memory. But then a second later, no, I think that you're just kind of like putting those those scenes together in your mind, which makes it so much more confusing. 
I feel like I'm being undone watching, you know, her or watching her go through her mental gymnastics that we see throughout. We And we saw some of it in the first episode. I mean, that's I think we how did. we ended our discussion last week was talking about it, but even more pronounced tonight. I think it's a combination of things, which is if, which is what makes it very hard to nail down and really makes her an unreliable narrator, which is where I was going with this. I think we really have to question everything she says. When she's talking to Detectives O'Rourke and Mendoza, I think you have to question everything she says. When she takes in information, she reacts so blankly you have to wonder whether or not she actually was already aware of that information or not. There are so many things about Grace and Grace's personality and Grace's memory that I think we need to try and unpack. But before we get there, yes, I, I want to start at the very, very, very beginning. Okay. What is up with this show's credits? What are we supposed to take from, from the, the song, from the home movie montage of the little girl who I don't know. I, feels like it's Nicole Kidman as a child, maybe pulled from her real home movies? I don't know. What do you think about these opening credits? I'm with you that it feels like, it, are we looking at a young Nicole Kidman, who we're supposed to think is like a young Grace here, you know, doing this little whole like, often this innocence kind of thing where, you know, the undoing, I assume, is like her loss of innocence, right? You could think of it like that. You know, she had this picturesque world and now it's all kind of falling apart. But also I have this weird, like, did they ever have a daughter? And like, would she have been this little red-haired little girl? And, or is that a fantasy that she had this daughter and this is what she was like? And I don't know, I have all this like mixing weird ideas. How about you? I think with someone who has the the memories and or imaginings that she has, I don't know that we can even remotely begin to guess who that girl is, if that's a figment of her imagination, if that is a child that maybe she had, uh, you know, and lost, if it's her herself, if it's supposed to represent her, like, loss of innocence or childhood. I don't even know, but I gotta tell you, even, even like, the theme song, The Dream of Little Dream of Me, it's like this really kind of sugary, sweet song, which doesn't match the tone of the show which seems so intentional it's it's just another way of kind of jarring you and putting you on the on you know rocking you back on your heels before the episode proper even begins and i, and I think that's kind of a masterstroke you're watching this sweet girl you know kind of like play and and into hide and go seek and there's a little dress up and it's very sweet it's like watching a, a beautiful home movie but then there's like kind of like a flash of blood toward to the end of the opening mm -hmm. credits and they add the thunder sound effect to it. And it's it's like you've entered this weird, bizarre nightmare. And to add like an extra layer to that, Nicole Kidman is the actual singer of the song. So that makes this extra like, is it her? Like, is this supposed to be like what she was like? I had asked you in the last episode whether or not we thought that when she was speaking about being controlled and being in this position of having, um, you know, Donald Sutherland as dad, Franklin, maybe she married Jonathan in order to kind of show like, you can't control me kind of thing. The way that they show this little girl and then it's Nicole Kidman's actual voice singing the song. Which I did not know. That is fascinating, which adds such a, really does add another layer of it just does. twisted. And it does make me wonder about like, if she just feels like she's being treated like a child everyone is always telling her which in this episode i wrote down it is definitely twice but it may have happened even more times where someone says my advice to you is 
And it's like this it's just it, the when when they say it, it just it like it was if it was in writing, it would have been in bold face, like like loud uppercase letters like all over me because the amount of times that someone tried to counsel her when she didn't ask for any assistance, whether it was the headmaster, Franklin, it was Sylvia. Everybody said, my advice to you is and then they tell her what she needs to go do in a way that like you can tell she like loses herself in this episode by the end she is just a shell of a person She's even a- mendoza and o'rourke same our advice to you is to do this i mean and mendoza in the most passive course he laughs at her and, and oh you know he's gosh. like you know don't give me the fucking fucking medical conference and he get laughs and so i mean the entire cop scene in the interrogation room that entire thing is that that's something we should talk about also but grace is having a mental breakdown here I feel like she's losing her identity, you know, like everything she knew about herself. I think it's a little bit even more than that, though. I really strongly feel after watching this episode and and watching the episode, watching episode one and then watching this episode now with that information and thinking about it, she has constructed walls around certain parts of her life and has bought into those walls so hard that they're being taken down a bit. Um, that she doesn't know what to do. I think I think the falling apart, the her watching her fall apart when she when she trashes the room at the beach house, all of that. I think it's all parts of the facade of her life kind of coming apart. Uh, so here are some examples. She goes and she she sees Doctor Stewart, uh, Jonathan's friend from the hospital. He says there are strict protocols. I can't talk. I can't talk. And he mm. runs away from her. She doesn't really freak out like you would think someone would freak out. A lot of Grace doesn't act like I think other people would act when she receives information. The police show up, right? She goes downtown with them. They drop the bomb that he, that Jonathan was fired three months ago from Norbury, from Price Norbury Hospital after three different disciplinary infractions, including a full panel hearing the prior June about inappropriate relations with the patient and the patient, obviously, uh, the patient is Miguel and the the mother of the patient obviously is Elena, which by that point, you kind of see that coming, right? She takes that in, even the part of learning that Miguel was Jonathan's patient, she takes it in so calmly without any kind of, not even like a facial tick, no breath sucking in, no shock that it almost seems like she did know that information, but she had like forgotten that she knew that information. Well, so let's just use some common sense. I understand that these people have money, but he would have had no paycheck for three months. No one would have noticed that. No one would have noticed a bank account. I feel like there would have been some common sense moments where you're like, huh? I understand that he was leaving every day and assuming that he was going to the hospital, but I feel like there would have been little clues that no doubt if your husband wasn't going to work every day, she knows more in her gut than she's allowing her mind to accept. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, so it's interesting. So she learns this this information, which as far as we know is brand new information to her, right? That her husband hasn't had a job for three months. Right. That he that he that he, you know, fucked the mother of a patient a year ago. Her main concern is all in all that is how did they get sealed information? How did they get the private records? That is her main comment of all that. Which a little bit given the fact that she's a doctor, that all that also made me wonder what she may have ever done because of how she was so clinging to that. And Sylvia also made mention of like, this is privileged information. So there was a lot of like little nuggets of like, 
what you do in your in your like little private world that you could classify as like sealed records or private mm -hmm. information or privileged information or client doctor information all of those things kind of seemed like they were like simmering around in her brain like i thought there was like a, a no one would ever talk about this like this is not something that that we speak about out loud it's interesting that they obtained those records so so fast with a court order they were looking at jonathan almost from like from jump yeah. It, it for them to have gotten the court order to unseal those records and look into his his job history and and get those get that material to find out the intricate details of the disciplinary hearing to find out the identity of the patient and the mother of the patient in question all of that for that to have gone through the court system so fast and to actually and the hospital to have turned it out to them so fast following the heels of the murder i mean this this murder still seems to be within what 48 hours not even right because we the it, episode picks yeah. up it's the it's just the next morning yeah they were looking at him immediately yes immediately and and it's interesting because the husband fernando turns himself in we learn that from the news that he has turned himself in he knew he was innocent obviously and and so they were able to cross him off the list immediately and fernando I feel like maybe must have known. Well, he probably did know, right? Because his he had to have known, yeah. Because Miguel was a cancer patient, so I'm sure Fernando was involved in his treatments. He had to have known. And again, this happened last June, and we're at least in the fall, right? This is New York City in in late fall, early winter. So we're a year and a half or so from when this all happened. Yeah, Fernando definitely knew and was like, I'm going to turn myself in and I'm going to tell you a story about a little doctor you should be yeah. checking out. I was so surprised that when they were doing the search warrant at the apartment and they took the brush and they said, Fernando asked for paternity testing. Clearly, it wasn't just like my wife had an affair with a dog. Like he knew exactly who it was. He knew exactly like Fernando knew everything about he knew to ask for Jonathan's DNA testing, you know? Yeah, I know. Yeah, he pointed Mendoza and O'Rourke exactly where they needed to go. And then the rest of the pieces just kind of all fall in together. But I wanted to get back to to Grace and her mental walls and and convincing herself what she didn't need to know because she has a genuinely like shock reaction in one way where she seems very believable when she says she didn't know any of this information. She didn't know he wasn't really, that he wasn't really at a conference in Cleveland for cancer. She seems genuinely surprised by all of that. But then later on, doesn't seem very surprised about it either. When she learns the information, she doesn't react with any kind of surprise. And that's why I'm saying I feel like someone, especially a therapist, someone as accomplished as her, it didn't seem impossible to me that she has erected, literally erected these walls of, we are putting this Pandora back in its box mm -hmm. and we will not speak about it. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I think it is. Is It's that feeling of like, I yeah, I know this information, but I don't accept this information. And so therefore right. it's not real and it's not something I'm going to talk about and it's not something that I, I'm just going to go about my life. I mean, do you know people in your world? I, I certainly know people in my world who oh, yeah, for sure. I know information about that. I'm like, I don't know how you like deal with your everyday lives. And it's just like, well, we put that in a box and we put that to the side. And that's just like not something that we talk about. There's a little bit of that, though, especially in marriages. I mean, you know, husbands and wives sometimes do bad things and they sometimes do bad things to the other person. But they, those marriages continue on. Mm -hmm. There's always a little bit of we're going to put that in a box. We're going to put it in a 
in a closet. We're going to bury a bunch of stuff on top of it, and we're never going to talk about it again. I feel like Grace took that to a like to the nth degree. <laughs> yes, like to the point of almost like literally blocking it out, where she's relearning all this information that she already knew. I would use as evidence of that. She she has this meeting, the super aggressive meeting with Mendoza and O'Rourke, right? And I was really impressed with herself that she she brought up the fact that it felt extremely custodial, and so you have to either read me right rights and uh, or let me go because that that's really actually how it works, right? What what those two cops did taking her into the interrogation room, they are dancing on the head of the pin of holding her in custody where she has to be read her her rights for sure. I mean, I didn't really understand why they treated it like exactly that way, except for maybe to just sort of like break down any idea of like if you think your privilege is going to allow you to sit in an office a nice cushy office with us and just have like a casual conversation which i think is what i would have i was expecting and i think what grace was expecting i think so too and so then when she had to go in that room i do want to point out that one of the things that that scene offered up to me was her glancing around at the cameras and it made me have a moment where i thought you know we are also covering a show called Next, and it has made me keenly aware of all of the cameras and how it's so easy to track people. And it really made me think a lot about the house that they had the fundraiser at. That home was beautiful and hard to believe that it did not have some pretty state-of-the-art security going on, which means that I think it would be pretty easy to believe that they could have footage of all the different times, including in the elevator, of all the times that Grace would have interacted with Elena looking at the camera was not lost on me. And it reminded me that there has to be all sorts of surveillance about all of this because that's the world we live in, especially in yeah. New York City. Like when you're dealing with like these people, like, right, that house, right, the the family who went away and let them use the gala, you're not leaving that house abandoned to people, even, even other rich people who go to your kids' same school without some kind of security system. I 100% agree with you. Right, I think it would just be a part of that yeah. house, you know, that you would have tons of security. Well, for the insurance purposes, alone i'm sure the insurance company probably requires you to have some yeah. kind of surveillance yeah and and i believe i've seen plenty of footage from elevator cameras in various tv shows and whatever i've seen plenty of security footage my little tiny apartment building i live in both elevators have cameras in them but my, my apartment building has cameras in every single hallway uh, on the floor like in the in yeah. the doorman's like watch room there's mm -hmm. like a whole bank of television cameras in the parking lot there every aspect of the parking lot every hallway in the building every uh, the both elevators is fully surveilled so all right so knowing that all right there's a bunch of elements there then of the surveillance that i want to pay attention to she learns this information that she supposedly is learning for the first time that Miguel was was a cancer patient of Jonathan's. She again for the first time within the next two scenes, her next two interactions, one with Henry and then one with Sylvia, she recites that information that oh, well your father she says to Henry, well your father you know he was Miguel was his patient, and then she says to Sylvia, you know well of course they knew each other. Miguel was, like she says it like this is known information. Mm -hmm. She says it in such a way like yeah, of course the sun came up today. It's morning time. That's what the sun does. That's how she recites the fact that Jonathan was treated uh, Miguel and of course would then know Elena. Uh, eh, record scratch. We, until 30 seconds ago, had no idea you knew who this woman was. We thought it was at the meeting was the first time you ever met this woman. But now you're saying, well, of course, Jonathan, you know, she she says it like it's known information. And it blew my mind that mm -hmm. she was able to like just that. So it all points to she knows this information. She just 
doesn't maybe remember that she knows this information, which is going to be really interesting as it goes on. I took in that information a little bit differently. I took it as, first of all, I, I don't think that Jonathan ever had a sit down conversation with her where he said I was terminated from the hospital, blah, blah, blah. And she knew it. But I do think on a gut level, she knew it. Like I said, there's no money coming in. If he bothered to hire Sylvia, I doubt his behavior was completely normal all the time. I bet there were small things that she could have picked up on. So at least, the very least, there was like a nagging feeling in the back of her head, right? So then when she goes to Sylvia and she goes even to the, when she's talking to the police and she tries to say, well, of course, he's a, he's a wonderful doctor. He's so gentle. Of course, he would be hugging the patients. Of course, he would be touching the patient's families and stuff like that. To me, I don't know if I take that as like, she had this, like, she knew all this stuff in advance concretely, but more like she's a smart person and she's a great talker and she could do a good job of you know as a therapist analyzing the situation and saying why someone might act a certain way so i thought well i guess you could think pretty quickly on your feet and be like start really quickly justifying why this would have ever happened or why he would have ever had any relations with a family or something like that you know so i wasn't taking it so much as if she was just repeating it matter-of-factly as much as she was like given this new information of course this is the way he would act like this is my husband he's gentle and kind and that kind of thing so i was kind of taking it more like that but i see what you're saying she takes in information and acts like it's completely normal very quickly in a way that you're like how did you not like lose your mind you know she does lose her mind <laughs> you remember so last week we talked about uh her having that image of Jonathan talking to Shelby McGibbons, right? The cancer, yeah. the pediatric cancer patient. And we remember we we talked about how there was a shadow figure mm -hmm. uh, behind kind of over Jonathan's like right shoulder in like the frosted glass. Tonight, after she has that encounter with uh, Stuart, the doctor friend, or maybe not friend anymore, but former colleague of Jonathan at the hospital, she has some kind of recollection, whether invented or not, of actually seeing Jonathan working with his patients. So it, it looked like it looked like it was a, a version of the same scene we had seen her have in bed last week, but now it was actually her watching that scene go on. And I thought that was interesting. After she learns that Jonathan was fired specifically because of his dalliance with Elena, she has first an image of him hugging her but in like a consoling kind of way like like uh like a doctor may do if uh if something either good or bad happens to a cancer patient because i think that does uh, you know resonate as true it is a very emotional branch of medicine it does not strike me as weird that there would be maybe hugging and, and consolation going on there i definitely agree especially because after like a long period of time which I, I don't i don't know if you've had family members who have had cancer but for me like my definitely like my grandparents got they actually became kind of like close with their doctor like because you see them so often and they're, you're on this journey with them and so when there's good news or bad news it, it wasn't really weird for there to be like hugs or cheers or tears together or whatever it, it wasn't weird right but then so she then she comes back to the interrogation room but then zones out again and and that scene now it's the same scene as where he had just been hugging her again in this very consoling way i feel i feel like that's how it came off very clearly but now he's kissing elena mm -hmm. when you intercut you you intercut that along with the the several scenes of elena and Miguel and the baby, and then Elena and just the baby staring at the camera and like having a, a, a some kind of good time. They're clearly on a couch. It's it's some kind of living room. I think it's setting. Elena and 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 um, Fernando's apartment. 
I think so too. It felt very much like a like a recollection because why else would you imagine it that way? And you imagine it with Miguel in there, and and then so it's the three of them, right? It's her, Miguel, and the baby on the couch laughing and having a good time, and it looked like very much like a POV of where you were sitting across from them, maybe in a living room mm-hmm. and watching that. Very laid back, very relaxed. But then she she has a more narrow version of that where Elena, it's still the same scene again. She's still wearing the same top that she had been, but now it's zoomed in very close on Elena's face and just the top of the baby's head and Elena's like staring at Grace presumably she's staring at the camera like uh, again imagining it that's a weird recollection to have like even if you wonder like what does my husband look like when he's at you know his job being a cancer doctor <laughs> right. what does Elena and her son and her baby look like in their apartment having a good time no that feels like more like a memory to me I mean, it seemed like it, but I but I'm giving Grace's brain a lot of credit in terms of its creativity and its imagination, and the Maybe. fact that, like I said, like yeah. as a therapist, I think that she spends all day long analyzing people's behavior and con- making conclusions about how or why someone got where they are. So if it, if that was the truth, then it's like you kind of if you work it backwards in her own life, she knows where we are. It could be that she's imagining backwards. How did we get here? How would this scenario have have unfolded? There were some actually kind of, I mean, if you wanted it to be kind of frightening, the scenes when, you know, she's walking through the city, you know, she Uh, sees Elena like on the actual like billboard advertising kind of thing. And I mean, Mm -hmm. that was scary. But so bizarre, though. It was like it was it was like psychosexual, though, right? Because her first image is of the fully naked, like Elena at the gym. Mm -hmm. And then she turns and then it's the POV of the murderer on top of Elena, you know, as she begs for her life and then the hammer crashes down. But then later on, she has a very elongated memory slash recollection slash imagining of Miguel coming in, Miguel finding the body, Miguel recoiling in horror, Miguel running out of the studio and down the street. Like, the power of her mind makes it so we can't tell what's real and what's not here. What is her coming up with it and what is a real memory? Because I think it is a mix. I don't think it's all fabrication. I wonder if what you just said, like, struck me so hard. Like, when you said the power of her mind makes me makes us not know if it's a memory or her imagination. I wonder if that's how we're supposed to take that that's exactly how Grace feels. Maybe she is actually mixing memories and imagination in her own mind and can't figure it out her own self. Like she doesn't even know anymore what is a memory or what she's concocted in her head. Which is consistent with an idea where she had she had taken putting it away in a box and not talking about it to the next level by literally forming up these walls mm-hmm. that are now being broken down because because Mendoza and O'Rourke are coming at her so hard because her friends are turning on their back because she learns that her only real friend the one who comes and does snatch her away yeah. oh Sylvia what a good friend I haven't even met us she's the only real friend here and then it turns around and Sylvia's like yeah your husband kind of hired me like he she goes oh so she's the one. And and Grace is like, the fuck you're talking about? Yeah. And she's like, yeah, he hired me, you know. But let's he, talk you know. about that for a second, because that scene is so important to what we were just speaking about, about what common sense would have led you to believe. Mm-hmm. Common sense for me, there's no uh, paycheck coming in. Something's going on with you at work, right? Common mm-hmm. sense for Sylvia, she's saying, I thought you knew. I assumed you knew. Because if you take it from a common sense 
I think she says, I don't know how. No, she says a bunch of times, I thought you knew. I assumed you knew. Mm. And so given that, though, it it pulls the camera back to common sense. Like, you can kind of say, well, she didn't know. She didn't know. But even Sylvia, her very good friend, said, well, common sense told me this is your husband. Why wouldn't you have recognized that something was happening? I was taken back by how hard the two detectives came at her. But on the other hand, you see where they would be aggressive with her because how could you not know, right? It's the, again, it's the exact point you're making. How could you not know your husband was yes. fired three months ago after a year and a half worth of ongoing disciplinary hearings and infractions at the hospital? How could you not know? Yeah. You know, the uh, why would we believe you that you're not harboring him in your apartment somewhere? You have no credibility with us because how checked out. It's not like you're going off to Bermuda every weekend or, you know, you're not there. You're living together. You're raising a child all together. You're with each other. And and you're, by the way, very, a very smart woman, a very accomplished woman. How could you not know? Yeah. On that theme, let's talk about a couple little moments, thinking about Grace's choices and how could she not know? So I was thinking right at the very beginning when she's asking Henry about whether or not Henry knows the code to Jonathan's phone. I thought that phone. was very interesting. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating that she did not know at all, but assumed that Henry would know. I was like, what? What? <laughs> it, either you have a household where everybody has their own passcodes and nobody knows each other's passcodes. Okay, mm-hmm. I can accept that. That's fine. Or everybody knows each other's passcodes and that's fine. But for the mom to expect that the kid knows the dad's passcode that she doesn't know, I was like, what the frig? We were talking about it in the context of city kids and how they're, they grow up faster than kids elsewhere. And the idea that Jonathan and Grace, but maybe even more so Jonathan, treat Hedrim almost like a peer uh, than, than their child in some ways. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was like another little nod to that, that, you know, Jonathan and Henry are so close that maybe he would have information that she as the spouse would not have. But it, it did strike me as weird, but it almost almost felt like a Hail Mary. Like I've got yeah. no one else to talk to in this giant house about where your father is. So you're gonna you're <laughs> gonna bear the brunt of all of my all of my worry. And Henry is a smart kid. He picks up on it right away. I thought it was really interesting with Henry when he talked when he's trying to make it all fit. He's trying to make the square peg fit in the round hole. Mm-hmm. And he says, You guys fight all the time about how he's so bad at checking in when he goes away on things. And that little line was so true, right? Yes. Don't kids pick up on shit that parents think they're so slick when they have fights or arguments or disagreements or anything that they talk about. They think they're so clever. Kids always know what the fuck is going on. Well, and it also get, like kind of leaned back into that whole like trying to make something ordinary that's not. Like him saying you know, it was probably someone who just called and heard your voice and then thought they had the wrong number. And so that's why they hung up. Just consistently trying to like make up these reasons to stay in your little world, to not have to accept any new information. It's his dad though, too, though, for Henry. Remember, and we talked about this last week, how Henry has this real strong need to impress his father. And later on, Jonathan, interestingly, I mean, his one reason for coming back, his one stated reason for coming back is so that Henry knows he's innocent because he needs, Henry needs to know that he's a good man. That's your stated reason? Like you fucking disappear when you're in the subject of a murder of education and it's your, your child's approval. I was going to ask you about that though. And then you're a dad. So I do need to ask you that. Like, 
if you know you've had an affair and you know that the whole world is looking at you badly, is it only your son that you ultimately care about what he thinks about you? Would you get to that point pretty quickly where you'd be like, I've got to go fight this whole fight with the world. But honestly, deep down in my soul, the one person who I don't want to think I'm guilty right now is my son. I literally was about to make that exact point. I, I'm a divorced dad. I have a son. He is my world. It would matter very much to me. Uh, maybe more than anything else that he, what he thought of me in that particular scenario. So I actually kind of really identify with that. And you have to imagine Jonathan realizes Grace now knows a lot of things that she did not know or or knew, but sub or didn't remember. I, I'm not, I don't want to say didn't remember. Isn't accepting as real information. Like she knows it, but she's not. What is the word like, 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 isn't. I think it's more extreme than that. I think it's more extreme. Maybe didn't know, but I, I, and that's a bad phrasing, but I think it's more extreme than just doesn't want to accept. Well, what's the right word? I'm, I'm struggling for a word. What's that right word? Like, this information is there. Everyone has said it. Henry has said, you know that this is. This is the scenario, mom. You, you Let's make up like different reasons why this could be happening. And Sylvia's like, I assumed you were picking up on different bits of information. The colleague at the hospital is like, what the fuck? How could you not know like what is happening? So like everyone's kind of like having that moment all around her of like, you are not right. picking this up the way that it's happening all around you. Franklin says, my girl, what are you doing? You're handling this right. all wrong. Like you're right. not recognizing the situation for what it is. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's like, I know the information and I'm using the word accept, but I want to find like, what's the, what's the right word for that? It's like, she won't take it in and act on it for what it is. The way I'm processing it is like, literally she has like built herself a little hut in her mind. And that is where she is hiding out. Yeah. And, and sudden they're coming in now with like wrecking balls and bulldozers and, and, you know, trying and she's being pried out of this little hut of deniability she has built for herself. And it's all rushing into her now against her will. And to that point of like building your own little hut, I feel like Henry is the same way. And I know he's a kid. And so I get that. But I kind right. of feel like everyone in this entire story, and maybe that's the point, we all build our own huts and we all live in it. And there's information all around us that we choose to ignore information that we probably should be paying attention to and we just don't and that like hit so hard when they are walking up to the school and henry goes to the media and all of the police presence is this due to the dead mom he's in seventh grade mike i like looked around the room like what yes of course it is why would you even say that? But it's like everybody's living in their own little world, right? Go to that second grade mom. This is my Kimberly's first murder. Do you have any oh advice? Like, again, oh that God. weird, like, I, the things I'm saying don't even make sense. <laughs> but, like, I'm saying them because I have such a narrow little worldview. Just listening to you talk right now, I was reminded of a line that stuck with me last week that we didn't get to talk about, but it was it was asterisk in my notes. Jonathan and Grace are having that bedroom scene when uh, you know, which leads to him talking about coming in the shower and helping scrub her down. But before that, she's talking about how they maybe should move to Schenectady, New York, you know, which is yes. upstate near Albany. And she she talks about how New York is a lonely place. That for all the millions of people who are in New York, New York is a very lonely place. And just listening to you talk about the little huts that we all live in, that's kind of true. You know, it, it, you know, we we make these little worlds for ourselves that we live in, and for whatever reason, to block out some of the reality of the day. 
it does make it a lonely place, even when it's not. Even when you're surrounded by quote-unquote friends at lunch or in the schoolyard or, you know, outside where the press is gathered, you're you're very much on your own. It is a lonely place. Grace is finding New York to be a very lonely place right at this very particular time. So uh, that line came rushing back to me just now from last week's episode. Let's talk about uh, the mom who it's her first school mor- murder. Let's talk about the fact that Franklin holds meetings at the Frick Collection on the Upper East Side. Let's talk about uh, the undoing and classism and how it's being portrayed in the show. Because, Caroline, I don't know what you saw, but it seems that people uh, watching the first episode and some of the reactions uh, are are a little jarred by the amount of kind of wealth porn, if we can use a phrase that we what we saw in a GQ article on this very topic. What did you see people talking about the classism in the show? Episode two is a great time to talk about the reception of the show with this audience, and especially the world we're living in right now. I mean, if you're listening to this five years from now, maybe you're like, what was going on? We're still right in the middle of Corona. We're still right in the middle of a presidential election in the US. There's a lot going on where people are struggling and they are really having a hard time emotionally, financially, everything else. So when you bring a show like The Undoing, which features wealth porn, if you will, features these really blatant moments, like the woman being all like, oh, I think I met Fernando. Yeah, I thought he was the janitor. I told him that, you know, we were we didn't have paper towels in the ladies' room. When you say record scratch, for me, I'm like, I like cringe up in a ball. I'm like, oh my God. I don't think it's unrealistic writing, but I do think it's cringeworthy writing. The bits that I've seen on Twitter, definitely people are speaking to it. Some people are saying this is something that is obviously just shining this huge spotlight on on the, the gap between these two classes. You spoke last episode about how Harlem is right next to the Upper East Side, but how divided that you can see that these classes are. So given that this is only episode two, I do want to say that I see how everyone's narrow worldview is affecting their behavior in this. And and they're saying things that are, are pretty outlandish for the most part. I mean, saying the whole, this is my Kimberly's first murder. That's absurd thing to say. And maybe you can speak to that from a New York City point of view. Maybe it's like, oh no, I mean, it, it's New York City, there's crime. I, maybe this is her first murder, you know? I really thought that the general topic of conversation of classism and are they lampooning these women by saying these things or are, are they holding them up like this is okay to say? What are they doing in, in, this, in this show? And I wanna watch through episode six to find out, but at episode two, what are, what does your gut feel and and is this a time when this is just not going to be easy to watch on TV when you're literally putting you know deciding whether or not to you know shut off your cable or whatever because you can't afford this anymore I think they are depicting a very real life situation I think these people on the upper east side do exist I think, and and not just to pigeonhole the Upper East Side, I think there are segments in Manhattan where people do live in these wealth bubbles. The, the writing was done for comic effect, but it hit in a way where if you know these people, if you know these circles, like this is a thing that is true. The, the, the idea of your friends are only with you insofar as you've got the life uh, that everyone wants. And I think that's what the point of this show is trying to is trying to depict. These people have it all. They they have all of the money. They have all of the connections. They've got all of the wealth you can imagine. 
Plus, they're beautiful, they're sexy, they've got a great kid, they've got a dad who pays $50,000 tuition bills, they're living their best lives. Well, it's easy to think that until they're not living their best lives. And I think this is satire. I don't think they're meant to be glamorizing these people. Like the, the, the friend who comes off with the janitor line. That's not meant to be whimsical. That's not meant to be, oh, you know, Susie's so funny, she couldn't tell the dad from the janitor. I think it's meant to be, uh, I think you're meant to take ire with that woman, that she's so up her own ass that she doesn't know the difference. I think the show is satirizing these people. I think it is is trying to say money can't actually buy you happiness it can't actually buy you a good life or even peace of mind that's the exact same thing that i saw out of grace and i'm kind of taking my cue from grace as to what they want us to be thinking about a dangerous thing with her, with her <laughs> no but reliable like when she looks at that status. woman she looks at her with disgust when she says the thing about fernando and so to me that's to me she's she's representing what the show wants you to understand like we're we're not okay with this that this woman said this and we're not saying that people should go around saying this this is not cool right it is something that i want us to keep an eye on as we go through mm -hmm. episode six taking in our listeners feedback and reading twitter and reading articles i want us to kind of pay attention to it could go any which way we could really like focus on it more or this is going to get like where it just gets washed away a little bit and and the storyline itself becomes more important right i think you could have set you could have set this story in wichita or st louis but i don't think it hits as hard without the drastic economic stations being depicted here i think it's important to the story to 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 the dramatic element of the story that uh elena was in uh, you know not from the same side as the proverbial tracks thing you know that she wasn't on the right side of 96th street which is the dividing line of up the upper east side and east harlem um she's on that wrong side of that line to fit into the same world and she says that the grace i want in i want to be in this world you know not i want me and miguel and fernando to be in this world not i want me and miguel to be in this world or me miguel and fernando and the baby to be in this world I want to be in this world, right? She says that to her last episode. She's looking through the window and she sees all the glamour, you know, late at the end of the episode. I think it's important to note that Jonathan says uh, Lena's obsession, the way Jonathan perceives it, Elena's obsession moved on from Jonathan and landed and focused on Grace, that she wanted to go to Reardon. She wanted Miguel to go to Reardon because of grace she joined grace's gym because of grace she you know the obsession landed on her and then when you when you look back at the conversations that elena had with grace from last week's episode from the first episode you can kind of see where she's pleading for that you made the point she doesn't she didn't want clinical help from grace she wanted grace to be her friend she wanted help from grace as a friend to want to listen to you know her problems and stuff all of that doesn't work as well if they're all in the same economic strat yeah. stratus i don't think it looks as good i don't think it looks as sumptuous if it's not in new york if you put, even put this in la where the wealth is the same if you put this in beverly hills it doesn't look the same because new york has this this character where you have the very rich and the very not rich living kind of door to door and you don't get that everywhere 
I feel like it is a story of envy and a story of jealousy and a story of, of wanting what you don't have. Everything, the mm -hmm. grass is greener everywhere else. I think that her sitting there looking at that, whatever this is, that vision, if you will, of Miguel and the baby and Elena sitting there, I think that's something Grace wants. I think she envies that. I think she envies a quiet afternoon with your son and your baby playing and laughing together is something Grace wants. Like there's envy across the board. And so I do think that classism comes into this entire thing, but I think that the larger theme of envy and jealousy and mm -hmm. everyone has it better than I do. If you just kind of keep, you know, looking around, you can always find someone having it better than you do. <laughs> no matter right. where you are in your station right. of life, somebody's got it better than you do. Even among Grace's friends, right? Yeah. They, you know, they they all wanted Jonathan. You know, until until this episode, they all wanted Jonathan. The humor, the charm, but also the empathy to be able to be a pediatric oncologist and deal with that with such a good humor. Like, even in this episode, they're they're talking about Elena. The woman's fucking dead, and they're sitting around there talking about as they're inserting themselves into the narrative about the janitor con the comment. And so they're talking about how she almost was begging for it by you know the men inhaling her at the gala. Yeah. Good God, people! Like, where is your humanity? The woman is bludgeoned to death in you know, and her son found her, and you're talking about you're talking about that she looked really good in her dress that men flocked to her. Get the fuck out of here! What is wrong with you? But yeah, so it's it's classism. There is classism on display here. The classism is for the dramatic element of it and for the satire of it. The idea that just because you have money, just because you have oodles of wealth, doesn't mean you have everything you want. And you're right. It is a story of envy. Envy wanted Grace's life, and Grace maybe very much wanted Elena's life in a lot of ways. I, yeah, I think it's something to keep an eye on, but I don't think it is... I don't think it is a lack of awareness on the show's part. I think the show, I think David E. Kelly and Suzanne Beer, I think they're very intentionally painting a world here for us to to be in. Not that they were just deaf to the 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 calls of wokeness in 2020, if that makes sense. I, I think it I think it absolutely does. Can we talk about Sylvia real quick? Yeah. The fact that she didn't ever mention it and the privileged confidential thing, as a lawyer, I appreciate that. I actually understand that. I was more focused on for the second episode in a row, her saying that the husband always does mm -hmm. it. She had and, and gets really excised when she says yeah. it. Yeah. She said it again this episode, and in the same way where she's like, you know, she, you know, she was she was just talking like a normal person, and then she was like, the fucking husband always does it, like all clenched teeth, just like she did like in the first episode. What is Sylvia's deal? What is her backstory? Now I want to know what her backstory is with Jonathan. Now I'm like, yeah. well, who knows who John who Jonathan was zooming? You know, zooming is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, you know, <laughs> who's zooming who? I think that's a line from the West Wing from years ago. It does does Grace have to be worried about Sylvia and Jonathan having been a thing now? Because that's definitely a vibe that I'm not saying I didn't pick up in this episode. They were able to have a, a, a professional relationship. You have to wonder, you know, if you're Grace, maybe you have to start wondering what don't I actually know that's going on here? I think there's plenty of layers of Sylvia that I would love to know more about. And I was curious about that entire scene where Grace is watching the TV footage and she gets the call from Sylvia and they're talking and Sylvia is at work. It's obviously late. She goes to her office. Her kid is sitting at the desk eating her dinner it looks like and she's like petting her daughter's hair and stuff like that and i was thinking like what is this scene supposed to tell us what are we supposed to get out of this especially mm -hmm. when sylvia's like i got amanda on the other line i gotta hang up 
That was so abrupt. I was really taken back by that. Grace rolls her eyes at it and, and yep. they hang up. I, I think that even your best friend isn't being there for you speaks to the loneliness aspect of it and speaks to the whole she can have people all around her. She can have Franklin, her father, around her and still feel like she's on her own. Because New York is a very lonely place. Yeah. And I'm going to speak to even something else. I think that when you're a capable, intelligent person, and, and I'm and for my own self, because I love the shoes that I wear, I'm going to say woman, there is a sense that you can handle everything. You can handle anything. And so therefore, you've got this. It actually just leaves you standing all alone. And there isn't anything at all comforting or helpful about that thought process about you. There's something that I'm listening to with that conversation that's like, Grace needed help. Everyone around her could see she needs someone to talk to. She needs help. Mm -hmm. People are all just telling her what to do, but there's not really like this sense of like, talk to me. Like nobody has just been like, how are you? What are you thinking? How are you handling? You know, everything's just been like kind of pushing her different directions. Even Henry doesn't ask her how she's doing. Henry's conversations for most of this episode are the police think that dad killed that woman. Dad this, dad that. Henry doesn't stop at any point and say, hey, mom, you know, he doesn't even ask her if he doesn't. Henry doesn't even inquire after her well-being to see if she knew anything. No one asks her, you're 100% right. Even Franklin, when he goes into therapy mode, when she shows up at his swank apartment, um, you know, he says, well, how are you two doing lately? He just want he wants to go into therapy mode like she does with Michael and Joseph. You know, how are you guys doing? Were you having any problems kind of thing? Can we talk about that Michael and Joseph scene for just a moment too? Oh, yes, we can. it's really because... important to this. I, I think that the way that they're using the therapy sessions to give you an extra glimpse into the story is really well done. Because you have to look for it. It's not It's not like on a silver platter, but when you think about it, it connects, I think, very well. The commentary that is said is, I think that secrecy was always a part of it, a big part of it, and how he's always been righteous in his values. And he's always mm -hmm. kind of like hidden behind them. And Grace's view or the camera's view zooms in on how his partner is squeezing his upper arm. He's covering it for his, his partner. He has his hand over the top so that it's as if, oh, maybe we're just like, he has his hand on me, but it's not that bad. But you can see from the side that, that the other man is squeezing and pinching his upper arm in a way to say like, you know, it's a control little like I'm going to squeeze harder if I don't like what you're saying or I'm going to let up a little whatever. But like, oh, my gosh, speak to that whole conversation we had last week about control, mm -hmm. secrecy. Oh, my goodness. This session had my head like spinning. Uh, I agree. And before I go on, I want to I want to make a correction. Last week, I referred to them as Michael and Robert. Robert is actually the name of the headmaster of Reardon, not the name of the patient here. It's Michael and Joseph. Uh, they are the Hoffmans and Joseph Hoffman is played by Matt McGrath. And Michael is played by Tarek Davis. But I got his name right last week. I didn't want to misidentify them for a second week in a row. Anyway, the part that stuck out for me from that conversation about the secret and the values and the hypocrisy of it all was the line, part of me wants to be dangerous. It played into the whole kind of kink factor that we talked about last week with 
Grace and Jonathan, this idea that through Jonathan, Grace also gets to be a little dangerous. And and kind of the same the same theme of her relation of her therapy session with the female patient from last week. The idea of you see in these husbands, these men that you come up with what you want to see, not really who they are. I think Grace is also doing this through through Jonathan, through her marriage, gets to be a little dangerous. That maybe maybe Grace not only knew about his relationship with Elena, but was maybe a little turned on by the relationship. Maybe was a factor in that relationship a little bit. Maybe there's a reason why Elena was made, quote unquote obsessed with Grace. Maybe maybe there's more here, and we don't really know because you can't really believe too much that Grace says, especially when it comes to Elena and Jonathan. I don't know that we can trust anything she's saying when she says in the police car, I didn't really know Mrs. Alves that well. Well, I don't know that that's true, Grace. I think maybe you knew Elena a little bit better than you think you did or are admitting to. I think there's a part of Grace here and her relationship with Jonathan and Elena that maybe Grace wants to be a little dangerous, just like Joseph says. I 100% agree. I think that everything they're saying, she is relating to on some level that, I mean, as watchers of this show, I mean, I think all of us, though, can go back to our own selves and be like, who doesn't want to be a little bit dangerous? I mean, nobody wants, nobody sits around saying, I prefer to be 100% bland, predictable, and boring. Nobody says that. I mean, everybody wants to have a little edge to them, a little something going on in their life that they feel is exciting. Everyone's definition of what's exciting and what's dangerous is different. But yeah, I mean, I think that that was very relatable. I am so wondering what the dynamic is as we apply it to Grace's life. Who is the person whose arm is getting squeezed? Who is doing the squeezing? Who are the players? Is it Franklin and Grace? Is it Grace to Jonathan? Is it Franklin to Jonathan? Like who's squeezing whose arm? Or are we all squeezing everyone's arm? I don't know. Without knowing more yet, and we're only still scratching the surface of what Jonathan and Elena's relationship actually was. I mean, we're definitely feeling that there was a baby that came out of it. But what was this a thing that came together out of the grief and the high emotions of Miguel as a cancer patient that fueled it? Was it was it was it a an all passion affair born out of that very emotional time? Was this true love found? I mean, Jonathan's still hanging on to a scarf and a bottle of perfume that does not belong to Grace, hiding it in his coat pocket. Let's go. To, let's get into these these two super important plot points. So so in the whole unraveling the mystery of everything, we've got like two big moments beyond the termination. I mean, of course, that was huge. But like in terms of Grace and Jonathan actually starting to unravel this, her doing that search of his office was so Mad Men, so Betty Draper. I was like, oh mm -hmm. my God, you're going to find the mm -hmm. locked drawer, aren't you? <laughs> you're going to have to go yeah. find a key somewhere and you're going to dig it out and his like true identity is going to be in there. But yeah, finding the scarf, finding the perfume, it also made me rethink that elevator scene so much because leaning into Nicole Kidman was like, smell me, smell me and recognize my smell. And then right. she totally does later with the perfume, which P.S., that was a lot of perfume to spray all over yourself. I, one one spritz would have been enough to have like sniffed it on your arm. I was like, oh my God, her whole arm is, her entire forearm was wet. Wait to detectives uh, O'Rourke and Mendoza get a load of the fact that, that she now smells like, she now smells like the deceased woman. Yeah, keep, keep, 
keep claiming you didn't know what your husband was up to when you smell like her. But um, Silk scarves and perfume is not good things to find. I think if we're being honest with each other, I don't think... I think we could probably all agree that she probably didn't even need to put that perfume on her arm at no. all. She knew what that smell was. And, and and I again, I like how the show keeps showing us these flashes. It's maddening to me, mad maddening to me, that I can't tell if they're straight memories or they're, you know, fabrications or they're some combination of both. But we know for sure the sniffing her arm evoked the time in the elevator together. And you're 100% right. That was Elena literally marking her mm-hmm. territory and marking Grace. Be like, you're going to smell the scent again. It's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, intense, intense. I don't think we know enough yet to get into Elena's motivations. But let's get into Jonathan's motivations because he comes roaring back literally at the end of this episode. Yeah. Did you see that coming? Like, Because all of those moments where she was like nerved up in the house, where she kept thinking like she saw something, she heard something. Well, she sees something on the yes. rocks, right? So and she, she heard like so something I, when she was sleeping. Mm-hmm. I mean, did you think it was him mm-hmm. or what What did you think? I didn't. Not not at first, because I, I thought at this point we weren't going to see him again this episode. I thought, you know, the name of the episode is The Missing. By this late in the episode, I figured this was going to be a completely no, no Jonathan episode, that we were just going to kind of talk about him in absentia. So I was surprised. And it also makes sense that, you know, thinking back to the beginning of the episode, who called his phone? Well, he called his phone. He wanted to see where his phone was. So I think that's interesting to think about. We don't know that for sure, but that's in my headcanon. That's what it was. He was checking to see if anyone had his phone or was doing anything. Oh, with for it, sure. You know? Yeah, that's how I felt. Did they pick it up and say, 23rd police precinct? Yeah. How may I yeah, help yeah. you? You know, on like, you know. And, and yeah, and then so it makes sense that he's he's trying to keep an eye on the situation. He's tracking his family. Where is my phone? Where is Henry? Where is Grace? So he's popping out it by the rocks. Because that's a weird thing to imagine if it's not actually there. You know, the, the noise in the house. But then when he kind of comes out of the shadows and places his hand. Listen. That's scary. I don't know me. if you've ever been attacked. <laughs> I don't. I, I thought of you right away because you were a scaredy cat. You were a self-admitted scaredy cat. I think you may have gone to the bathroom on yourself. But someone had come out of the dark. <laughs> Put their hand over your mouth and said, don't scream, don't scream, don't okay, scream. Okay, I'm sorry. Bitch, if someone... bitch, I'm going to scream. Yes. If someone comes out of the dark Thank and puts you. their hand around, yeah. If, well, I'm going to go lay some black belt Taekwondo moves down on them. But, but disproportionately, yeah. like size-wise and everything, him to her and yeah, everything. Yeah, she's sitting if down If somebody even, came cause... up to you and was proportionally that much bigger than you and everything and put their hand over your mouth, and yep. they already showed that it was just her and Henry at the house, and they mm-hmm. showed them eating dinner alone and all that kind of stuff, wouldn't you shit yourself? Like, what the heck? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and it's interesting, you know, you're, you're right to point out the size difference too, because they have her sitting when it happens. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you go toe-to-toe, she's Nicole taller. Kimmon, I'm positive. <laughs> is taller yeah. than Hugh Grant. So power dynamic wise, you want it to be that way. But also you see from his point of view, she clearly would have screamed. Anyone would have a- screamed. Any, anyone yes. would have. So, but it, it was just a funny juxtaposition of you have accosted this woman out of the darkness, literally out of the corner of the darkness. You know, the su- it's barely sunrise. It's barely dawn. And you're saying, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream as you're covering her mouth. Bitch, what do you expect her to do? I think it was realistic. I think that is what someone Oh, was yeah. And- oh, for sure, for sure. And she has a look of terror in her eyes. Even when she realizes it's him, the terror doesn't go away because she's thinking this guy is guilty at this point. I don't think you should say that. I don't think you should say what she's thinking because we don't know what she's thinking. We definitely... The terror in her eyes made me feel that way. She's scared of him anyway in that I think moment. she was shocked. That he was there. And I think she's pissed. Those are two things that I would put uh, there. I like that. 
I like that. that she's oh, I think she's really there's pissed a gr- because there's, she's there's a great been left line. to handle this line? entire situation. I mean, he left he left yeah. her to handle all of this. Yeah. She's the one being, you know, hauled off to the to the police department. Like she is having to handle this all alone and he abandoned her, you know? I, what did you think? Because I, I thought you'd like this line. I wrote it in my notes, too. It was a favorite of mine. She, he goes, uh, she says, I'm going to call the police on you. And he says, give me two minutes before you make that call. And she responds. Yeah, she said, I gave you my whole life. Oh, fuck. Yeah. That is a good line. That is good writing, for one thing. But delivered by Hugh Grant and Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. that hits exactly. That is like a great port wine after a delicious dinner. <laughs> no, it was really it was good. Like, it was good. It was I so do, good. I did want to so talk so to you good. about this and in like a what would you do scenario. So so you've been married before. I'm married. I was thinking about this and the idea that they we know they've been together for a long time. At this point, you've spent two days defending your spouse and saying he, he didn't do it or in your case she didn't do it they pop up at the at the family beach house do you call the police right away or do you give your spouse any amount of time to explain what the fuck is going on do you give any amount of time for you to be able to unload on them and yell back at them and be like you you're ruining my my entire life or do you call the police right away I think you give him exactly the amount of time that she gave him. Because remember, the, the two people giving her advice, in the, among the people giving her advice in this episode, you have Detective Mendoza, um, played by Edgar Ramirez, the great Johnny Versace uh, playing Edgar Ramirez, says, don't protect him. If he reaches out to you, call us. That's the best thing you can do for yourself and for and your Sylvia son. Sylvia says the same thing. And Sylvia says, get out of town. And if he contacts you, turn his ass in. That's her two pieces of advice. And she takes both of those things. So I, I see in her situation why that is. Yeah, her but thing. I'm asking it you personally. I'm asking you personally, Mike. Like this is, you have to get that personal because this is a marriage. And this is, a, it's it's a no fun who done it if you can't say like, what would you do? I wait. I don't call the police I right don't away. Either. I want to know the story. I want that. I want to sit and have a ninety-minute conversation about what the fuck. I want to know what happened, and I don't want to know through a police report. I want to know from their freaking lips what happened. I want to talk about his version of the story because I found it very compelling that he didn't do it because it's such a bad shit. Paints him in such a bad light. Defense of the events of the night of her murder. That it seemed to me, I uh, he didn't do it because he otherwise already looks so so horrible. I don't know. I found it very compelling just the way he. But he's also charming, and that's the, but that's the point. Because it was happening quickly, viewer, and if you don't watch it as many times as Mike and I do before before listening to this, mm-hmm. basically he passes on the information that yes, he he was treating Miguel. He did have an affair. With Elena, fell in love with her. Yes, that's a key portion. Says, that, but he, but that's first a key he says, of it. "I had an affair," and then, and right. then he says, "You know, this I, I didn't, I didn't really realize where this was going." And then he uses the word encroachment, and mm-hmm. it talks about basically how once he realized that Elena was going to the school meeting and and the gym and all that stuff, that then he got scared. He got scared for his family. I think that's really right. realistic that you would get scared. Right. There's one thing of having a fling. There's another thing where it becomes Glenn Close and fatal yeah, attraction it level. It feels thing. that way. And it doesn't make what he did 
better, but you can see where there's a line drawn in the sand. And it almost is like he was willing or he was willing to accept the price of her being obsessed with him in his telling. And I'm not saying this seems like a very one-sided way of saying it. And I think I think you have to take obsession with a with a grain of salt. He was a willing participant. I'm, I don't think she ever pulled down the fly of his pants against his will kind of thing. It, it's believable to me that he would become worried about the safety of his family. Because he says, I helped get into Reardon School. I helped Miguel get into the Reardon School because I thought it was about his education. But then I realized it was actually about obsession with you. And so when I heard that she joined the, the gala committee and she joined your gym, you could see where it, it becomes even more than just worried about the secret getting out, right? But maybe it's not a secret. Maybe Jonathan believes because she does, maybe Jonathan believes that Grace knows some of the particular particulars here. So he is looking past the, I was worried that you were going to learn about Elena and me and went right to, I was worried about her becoming obsessed with you and your safety and Henry's safety because he knows that Grace already knows about the fact that they had a relationship together, which is an interesting thing, right? If you, you can look at his telling of the story of the facts that led up to her death in a very particular way where Grace knows some of the information that he doesn't actually restate here, right? Yeah. So to the night of after seeing her at the gala, he goes, he confronts her, they argue, they fuck. He leaves, he looks like a, a guy who fucked a woman that he should not have fucked, right? When he says it, it looks so bad on him. And then he leaves, he went to a bar, he came back. Presumably the bar would be able to, probably someone would be able to vouch for him going to a bar. A bar at that time of night, someone's probably going to remember you. He comes back, she's dead, he panics, he flees because he knows how it looks like, which again, all very believable. Well, he doesn't, he doesn't flee. He comes home and has sex with Grace. Don't that's skip right, that's right, that because that's, right. that's, right. that's oh, pretty oh, gruesome. That is pretty gruesome. You're 100% right. I can't believe I said that, right? So he panics, right? He, le he doesn't call the police. He flees the scene. Well, so that panic when he comes home isn't over the loss of a patient, but over the death of Elena. And that changes everything. And so but so turned on though that he has sex again that that's i mean good for him that he can get it done twice so closely but they just don't come home and cuddle he just doesn't cry into her shoulder they have sex in that bed she quote unquote comforts him as he cries because she makes the assumption that it was the patient who died or something bad happening with the patient but again it's this kind of like sexual erotic thriller kind of thing that jonathan was in a way aroused by the fact that he had this this row and sex and then murder of this woman and was able to be sexually aroused and have sex with his wife very soon after there's a whole level of erotica here that i don't even fully understand yeah i think that the mental gymnastics that have to happen to be able to get to how he got right. there is quite a bit and and i can see right. where i mean again going go back to being grace if we can just take it at the most base level, she was completely startled by him on the on the porch. He has abandoned her to deal with this entire mess that has been made here, whether or not he did it or didn't do it. Leaving her to have to stand alone and handle all of this was a shit thing to do. Mm -hmm. Unforgivable. And then getting into the whole had an affair, whether this was news or not, question mark, but then saying that he was in love with her. Okay whole nother level here one thing to have yeah. an affair with a pretty young girl i agree he talks about like kind of like falling in love with her kind of thing which then makes sense why he's holding on to the scarf and the perfume right 
But why tell her that? Like, ah. Uh... Well, because because it all adds to the believability, right? I guess uh, it, it all adds to believe. Like, I'm I'm coming clean. I'm hanging out my laundry here. I had a relationship with her. I fucked her. I went and I confronted her. I fucked her again. I'm in love with her, but I didn't kill her. I found her dead. All of the bad shit before it makes his statement that I did all of these things, but I am innocent of killing her more believable. Okay, so it's one of those things that if you own up to some of it, even the bad stuff, right, then somehow... It, the the, the really assumption is, yeah. well, you would own up to all of it if you had really done all of it. Because you were willing to admit, admit this much fault, then surely right. you would admit this last part if it was true. Right, because you, you have to think in, in, in their situation, in their marriage, where her father is paying so much of their bills and the money and the, the why are they together, right? The things he's admitting to is going to sink his marriage and ostensibly what his son thinks of him to a large extent, uh, which is something that clearly is important to him. He talks about that's why he's here right now, in fact. He is already sinking so many of these things. So it's almost like you've already gone in for a penny, go in for a pound. If you did these things in this in this flood of of confession that he is that he is verbally diarying this information on the porch to her, it would come out, I think, that it was then this crime of passion kind of thing. Yeah, that basically he just like pushed her too far, said something about Grace, said something about Henry, something like that. And I just right. lost I'm gonna my mind. I'm going to expose you. I'm going to tell your yeah. son. Yeah, I lost my mind. Right. And I not I, right, I'm not right, expose right. you. I I'm going right, to do right. something to your son. I'm going to do something to your wife. Like, oh, my God. I mean, and that would be believable. Right. I mean, because uh, any one of us right. would say, oh, my God, if we were in that scenario and we realized how obsessive this woman had been, he could make up any last words he wants to of hers. See, I have a good reason. But you're right. He maintains that he didn't do it. So I have to ask you at the end of this episode here. Do you think that Jonathan did it? I don't. I don't. One, because narratively, I like the like the listener that mentioned it's it's too obvious at this point if he did it. So narratively, I don't think he did it. But I found again, I found the story very compelling at the end. Now, there is a cynic side to here. Of course, confess to having sex with her when you go to confront her because they're going to find your DNA inside of her. Confess to going there and confronting her at all because they're going to find your prints or something. You can't be clear. You, you can never really be sure that you got everything done. Better to confess to it now. There is that side of it, but it is is delivered in such a it is delivered in such a way of I'm going to confess to X, Y, but not Z, I found very, I found very compelling. Fact, and when you add it to the fact that Grace is, is showing herself to have a relationship with Elena that we don't fully understand, and that she seems to be increasingly unreliable as a narrator, I'm as likely to believe what Jonathan tells me right now as I am to believe what Grace tells me. So all those things taken together... I'm, I'm kind of siding he didn't do it at this point. What's your take at the end of the episode? I agree that I think it cannot be as simple as he did it. I think it's plausible that there's actually more than one person who did it. I think meaning like somebody was like working together, maybe Grace and Franklin. Oh, Franklin. Now you're introducing Franklin to it. Oh, I think Franklin, Franklin fucking and... comes into play, man. You don't bring Donald Sutherland in for just like some bit conversations on the phone and stuff like, mm-mm. Well, I agree with you. I want to save the other possible suspects for next week's episode. I think the discussion will be more interesting after we watch next week's episode about if it's not Jonathan, then who it could be because I, I, I think I think we'll have some I more think not Jonathan, but I think that it could be layers of people that were involved in this. 
I like that. I like that. I mean, I think back to that crime scene. Again, we had another view of the crime scene, the aerial view. It it very still strikes me as a crime of passion. The amount of blood, the violence, hitting someone with a blunt object up close is a very personal, very violent way and not a robbery. Like going into someone's studio, confronting them, attacking them so close. That's a very personal murder. That's a very personal, violent death. So I'm still going with crime of passion but not going with Jonathan's crime of yeah. passion. His, his passion comes out through his penis. It seems to you me. know, the one thing that I was super surprised at was that they, that they didn't show us having the police show Grace a picture of Elena's crime scene because mm-hmm. that would have made me fill in so many blanks as to her like visions or memories or imagination or whatever if she mm-hmm. had seen the bloodied face at that and that interrogation then i could plug that in and the fact that they didn't show it to her and yet she has these imaginations or memories or whatever they are and it's exactly the crime scene i'm like oh sister (laughs) you saw it Combined with the fact that she has a memory of what elena's apartment looks like as if maybe they spent time together which Again, oncology is a weird branch of medicine where I think there is a lot of entanglement in life. Doesn't strike me as unreasonable that maybe Jonathan and his family and Elena and her family all maybe spent time together. Maybe a celebration for Miguel having a clean bill of health. Please come to our house. You're spinning it too far. There's no way that Henry has been there or anything like that. Well, maybe not Henry, but may, but maybe Miguel gets his clean bill of health. He's in he would recognize Grace. Miguel would be like, "Yes, I know that family. Yes, I've met Grace." Like he, they would spill the beans. Did they ask? Did they ask Miguel if he knows Grace? I don't know that we saw that. They asked Miguel a lot of questions. Maybe, maybe Miguel did. Maybe that's why they got on Henry, and maybe that's why they got on Jonathan and Grace so so fast. No, maybe. Remember, we're talking one day from this murder and they have all of his hospital information. They are riding her hard like she is a bucking bronco. They're riding her so hard. Maybe Miguel did mention the fact that Grace and Jonathan had been over our house. I don't know. Anything's possible. Certainly, I mean, it would speak to why they consistently question her how many times she's ever met Alina or how many or how many times they've ever been around each other. Also so stupid, every gym would have cameras too, even in the locker rooms. Yeah. Right, which again, I didn't know Ms. Alves very well. She says in the police car, uh, unsolicited, yes. right? Completely non sequitur. So I didn't know her and, and doesn't even call her Elena. But you omit the fact that you've been hanging out and having naked conversations with her at the gym. At least once, anyway. So much to untangle, Mike. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited. So much. I love that they have kept us so just drawn in because a lot of shows wouldn't be able to do this. And we're only in episode two. And Jonathan's already back on the scene and the police are already called. So that we're moving, like, what is going to happen in the next four episodes. So excited. What a what a closing scene with her being on the police talking about her husband who's a fugitive as he's hugging as she's watching him hug their son. What a way to end an episode! It's yes. insane. Oh it's my insane. gosh! Well, that's gonna do it for me and Caroline talking about episode two of The Undoing: The Missing. Now stick around for our exclusive interview with Detective Paula Rourke from The Undoing, actor Michael Devine, and afterwards come back and we'll wrap up the show. Be right back. Joining us tonight on Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast is Michael Devine. Michael is playing Detective Paul O'Rourke in Undoing, and we're super happy to have him with us tonight. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I I, I love that you've titled this, Do I Unnerve You? That's one of my favorite lines in the whole series. 
And when the way she delivers that, I just, I love that. So I'm, I'm so glad you titled it that. We watched the episode a couple times before we recorded it. And the two of us came together and we we're like, that really just stuck with us a lot. And Mike delivers it in a really creepy way. When we do the podcast, he's like, do we unnerve you? <laughs> it's, real it's, not, it's, not, it's not creepy as much as just my general vibe, I think. So I want to try not to take offense to that. It's his Elena impersonation that does it for me. <laughs> I'm wearing more clothes though. I don't, I don't have quite the uh, looks that she has to bring to the... There you go. Before we even talk about The Undoing, I think, Mike, people need to know your story because you actually have kind of an amazing story. Your road to acting, your road to The Undoing, uh, your just kind of your career in general. But before we even get to that, I would be remiss if I personally didn't say I was also born in Queens, New York. I was born and raised right. in Flushing. So we have more than just being Michaels in our in our uh, in common. And I was a giant fan of Limitless. So I know you going all oh. the way back to like Limitless big time. So Oh, fantastic. I, I love Limitless too. So it's great when, uh, when people uh, re- recognize that show because we, we had so much fun on that. So I'm, I'm glad you liked it. Cool. I have a semi-friendship with Steven Skaya and Matt Fetterman because of their work with Blood and oh. Treasure because I've done some interviews and done some work with Blood and Treasure. And so I, I talk about Limitless a lot, actually, for a show that's been off the air now five years. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, they're it's a- so cool. I love those guys. We actually, we, we became uh, good friends. We stay in touch. Such, such a cool, cool, cool uh, writing duo. Uh, yeah, they're, they're very good guys. And uh, yeah, I, Limitless was remains of all the shows on television remains the one that I feel got canceled too soon. It was the one that I always pined yeah. for is always my answer to what show would you bring back if you could bring a show back and uh, Limitless was always that show. So uh, good. I love that enough with the limitless let's talk about you let's talk about your road to acting uh, you know you until very recently were a detective sergeant in the nypd which is not something many people may know about you what's your road to being a police officer and an actor tell us all about that i was uh, an actor first and that was my sole goal in life i i went to college for it and i said i'm going to be a professional actor and then uh, i got out of college and i'm like oh how am i going to pay the rent it, because no matter how good you are, no matter how lucky you can be, it's, it's still a, a very precarious way to make a living. So I actually got into management and I was doing fairly well in management for the Broadway shows. And then it just, when I was around 26, and it, it didn't enter my mind until like 25 or 26, I just felt this higher calling and I felt a need to, to serve my community. And, and it probably came from the fact that my father and, and my grandfather were both cops and I clearly come from a long line of cops, and, and uh, I just, I felt like I needed to try this. And it, uh, you know, acting would always be there. So I, I figured, let me, let me just, let, let me fulfill this goal. And I, I gave it a few years, and ended up, I ended up giving it 22 years. So yeah, I just retired a couple months ago after uh, 22 years in the NYPD. Now, how did I return to acting? I guess the second part of your question, I knew that that, with all the cop shows and uh, cop movies, all the cop roles, I thought, well, you know, maybe being a cop with a degree in acting might be something I could I could market myself as. It might be something I could bring to the table. So I uh, I started doing some auditions, and and uh, little by little, I started booking some roles. I got my SAG card, and uh, for the rest of my career, that was probably around 2002, 2003, and from that point on, I, I juggled both careers. So given that you actually started as an actor and then became a cop, is it a situation where when you get a detective role like this, do you need any kind of research at this point? Or is this just like, whatever, I know this job? 
That is what I'm asked to do. As far as the undoing, I was in the midst of, um, I, I was working in the chief of detectives office. I, I spent 12 years in the NYPD's detective bureau. So I was deep in, in the world of detective work. You know, his office oversaw every detective squad in the city. And, and the, uh, the character was, was based in the 23rd Precinct Detective Squad. So I, in his office, I had a bird's eye view of, of the detective bureau. So it, it came at a very good point in my career where I kind of felt like I could, I could walk right into it. And in fact, I, I was working in the chief of detective's office the day of my audition. So I just kept on the suit that I had on. I had that detective bureau pin on my lapel and uh, I, I, I kept that mindset and I brought that into the audition, which probably helped me get the role. You are a method actor by accident, if not by design. <laughs> You know, That's an like, interesting way to say it, yeah. Your, your agents can say is, listen, you're never going to find a more cop than Michael Devine. He lives the role, quite literally. Oh. He's bringing a gun. <laughs> He's bringing a gun to his audition. He's into it. It's happening. I would uh, never do that. But, but yes, it, it, uh, I, I lived it for, yeah, longer than I wanted to. Uh, well, let's, talk, let's, let's turn to the undoing a little bit. Can you walk us through the casting process? I mean, are you on everyone's uh, short list when it comes to a cop in New York at this point? And also, if you can, tell us about like, your first thoughts about the script and if anything in particular drew you to the role. Yes, I am on the, the short list of cops. And, and I'm, I'm grateful to be brought in to read for the role of a cop. And it's, it's been my bread and butter. But I love when a casting director thinks of me as something other than a cop. And, and my agent has been submitting me for, you know, uh, an expanded array of roles. So it's a double win when I read for something that's not a cop. And, and, and the, the roles that I booked that are police officers have, have been double wins. But as far as the audition for that, the, the process I went in, it was fairly... It's fairly simple. I went in and I read with, um, I believe Suzanne was there, the casting assistant at Ellen Chenoweth's office. And it was just me and her and a camera. I actually, I took my script and I cut it up and I put it in a detective's notebook. Sort of like, you know, the spiral of reporter's notebook. So, yep. and that's what a detective would be holding in an interview anyway. So I, I, when I, if I had to refer to my lines, I went, I went to that. I had my pen out and I, I kept it as real as possible. And, and they told me that the tone of the show was ultra realistic. And I did my best and I think it was a good audition. And then I didn't hear for a while. And it's, it's good to when you leave an audition to forget about it. But it, I think a few weeks had passed. And then I got a phone call asking me if I was still available. So I figured that's a good sign. And then I was told I was, I was, my tape was being sent to Suzanne Beer, the our wonderful director. So that was a good sign too. And then I, I feel like another few weeks passed. So the, the waiting period was driving me nuts. As much as you try to forget about it, you don't. And so I later learned that I was the director's choice. But then it had to get approval from all the other producers as well as HBO. So the, the waiting period was brutal, but it, it ended up working out. And I, I got the role and was on set, I think, a week later. I, I never really considered the advantage of playing a detective and having your sides with you, you know, just having kind of like taped, you know, <laughs> taped inside the notebook. That's genius. You know, you could do that dramatic pause and look down and refresh your lines a little bit. That's, that's very, very smart. <laughs> You're just checking your detective notes. <laughs> exactly yeah and, and, and also what my next line is but i wouldn't i wouldn't very very prepared for that because i thought the uh, actually your question had several elements but but i know you you asked about the the material itself and it, as you see it's it's very intriguing so much so in the first two episodes we've already been talking about how aggressive mendoza and o'rourke have been with grace mm. and uh i i had a good laugh about when grace turned her back on you and you like snooped through her mail on the countertop i was like oh look <laughs> right. at that o'rourke he's like in her business <laughs> right that was suzanne's idea 
Oh, really? Tell us. That's not, that, was, that was not scripted. That was Suzanne's idea for the director. Wow. And she said, uh, you know, while she turns her back, start going through her stuff. And originally, I was very subtle about it. But I guess it either wasn't reading clearly or she just wanted it a, a little more clear. So I, I, I made it bigger each time. But that, that, it, it was fun. I, thought, I also thought it was a great idea. Actually, if you don't know why, why, why am I looking? It could be interesting to the viewer. So how much of that type of performance is prompted by what you know to be just like a normal day on the job as a detective? Well, I think the tone, even though it was aggressive, and, and I think the audience is wondering why so aggressive, the detectives know so much before they even speak to someone. You know, there's there's definitely witnesses to, to question, but when you start to hone in on key players or, or persons of interest, I should say, your, your tone might change. You'll later see maybe why he was being, we were being so aggressive, but I, I thought it was really kept close to real life. And also we were following David E. Kelly's wonderful words. So we, we the path was laid out for us. But as far as the tone and, and timbre, actually Edgar and I went to, uh, I took Edgar to the real 23rd precinct and we sat with those detectives and we, we watched interrogation tapes. Uh, Edgar even asked the, the detectives, and these are actually world-class homicide detectives, we said, okay, this is the scenario. How would you approach this? So we got feedback from from the real world detectives, and I thought that would be good. Also a good refresher for me, but I thought Edgar uh, would appreciate that too, and we did. So the, the tone that we brought, as you may be wondering why so aggressive, it's it's still, I think, pretty close to real life. There is a sense of realism and there's a sense of urgency in the performances, yours and Edgar's, which is kind of like refreshing to see because I think you get a lot of tropey police officers. I, I think we've been so groomed to get like the screaming in your face, like, tell me what you did, you know, you did it, you know, like one of those kinds yeah. of performances. And, and and you guys are definitely being a little heightened. You're definitely being aggressive, but that's part of the mystery of the story and not so much just being super aggro police officers, you know, and, and I think it's I think it's height added to the the mystery of the show is why you guys are so hot on the heels. So I, I mean, personally, as a viewer and someone who's talking about the show every week, what you guys are bringing to the story has really heightened and kind of made me lean forward about like, what are we watching here? Like, what don't we know? Because it seems like you guys definitely know something, right? Which actually brings me to my question. So this is a self-contained six episode miniseries. It has a beginning, it has a, an end. How much of the story did you kind of know uh, at once going in or were you kind of finding out as you were shooting the episodes, were they unraveling as O'Rourke was kind of finding out? Did you have a sense of the entire story beforehand, I guess? I did. In fact, the, the whole six episode miniseries was shot as if it were a six hour movie. I received all six scripts at once so we knew where this was going and we were shooting actually probably per location. So the locations were more important as to where we were in the, in the script. So say we're shooting in the brownstone, that could be episode two. And later that day, we'll skip to episode four. It was mainly based on location. So I did, I knew what was coming. And I think that was, there are a couple of ways to approach it as an actor. It's, it's sometimes good to know what your character knows at any given point. Or another approach is to, to see it all the way through. So when you're given those scripts, you, you don't not uh, read all the way through, especially with the way they end. You, you got to read the next episode. So so we read it as you guys watch it. You actually mentioned, uh, you know, you guys actually stopped by the 23rd Precinct, which is the precinct that we see in the, the show, which is in, you know, kind of lower Harlem. It's just, just over that Upper East Side dividing line. And, and it's a great location. So much of the show has such a New York vibe to it. And clearly they're shot on location in, you know, various parts of New York City. 
as a New Yorker, as someone who was on the job or someone who's, someone who's a true New Yorker, how does it feel to you when you step on set in New York? Does it feel different to you? Is it, is it your New York when you're doing it in front of a camera? It feels very comfortable because I've been like you. I, I was born in New York. I, I grew up you know, just outside of New York. It feels like home and that, that actually provides a level of comfort as well. Where it can get a little challenging is because there's so many people on the street just when they stop and stare. You know, it's it's tough to focus sometimes if you're on the street, you know, shooting a scene where there's three people speaking, but there's a hundred people watching. But nevertheless, it, it still uh, it still felt like home, and, and uh, I love the way New York is portrayed in this. And and even though it's only a, a year since we shot it, it just it seems like a time capsule, doesn't it? Yes, uh, it, it does. No, there are no masks <laughs> anywhere. You know, people are right. people are congregating in places together. It's very strange. People are there. That's that's. I mean, that's enough. that's true. People are there. They're having beautiful galas. You know, yes. and no social yeah. distance. You know. Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. So we have been filling in our listeners as we go about any extra information we can tell them. So our listeners already know that The Undoing is based on the 2014 novel You Should Have Known. So for you, once you had secured the role of Detective O'Rourke, did you go back and look at the source material? Did you read the book? Did you do anything to prepare for the show? Absolutely. In fact, when I got the audition, I think I only had maybe a day or two, as you normally do, uh, turnaround to prepare. I read as much of the book as I could, and I definitely went to the scenes in the book, which were the scenes that my for my audition, which were some of the interrogation scenes. I actually there was there was a point where I was still waiting, and I'm like, I don't want to read the book because I'm going to get too excited. But the closer I got to getting the role, and it started to look like it was actually going to happen, I, I then sat down and read the book cover to cover. Even though it's clear to those who read the book and watched the series, they diverge quite significantly. There's a lot that remains the same. There's a lot where uh, you learn what's going on in in everyone's head, and, and as an actor, you 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 know that's what you live for. You know, it's interesting when the show first started being promoted, it was being referred to as you know based upon you know based on the book you know, or adapted of the book, and then more recently, it's kind of been turned into inspired by the book. Which you know, yeah. if if you're if you're kind of like a, a savvy between the lines person, you may you may go in there and and be expected that there's going to be and differences and how it plays out from the book, which people get really weird with sometimes, you know, adaptations and it's got to be a word for word, you know, reconstruction of the thing. But I don't know. I think there's something interesting about taking some source material and borrowing from it and, and keeping maybe a spirit of it, but being able to, uh, you know, do something new with it for, for television or, or a movie medium. H have you had an experience of having to play characters from existing materials, either adapting a book or, or you know, a like, well, Limitless, you know, so Limitless is based on the movie. And I don't think your character actually was a character in the movie, but the, yeah. I the idea of it, though, exists existed does that ever affect your performance when you're getting ready for a role i actually am fierce in that regard even things where i had you know just a very small roles just one-liners i would actually read the book just to familiarize myself with it just to get a, an overall picture of it but uh, as far as limitless it's so funny how the writers didn't even know me as a person but they wrote that character so close to who i am as far as like being the police officer who corrects other people's grammar and you know, overthinks things and, and uh, has a, a, an artistic vision in places where it doesn't belong. It was very interesting to me. I'm like, how did these people know me as a person? So that one, I, I didn't have to do too much research because, hey, that was me. 
a lot of that time you were you were watching me. Man, I could just talk about Limitless all day, but I'm gonna I'm gonna resist the urge. Of, but I I am sitting here. I was like, do I keep going on those quick? But no, no, I'm I stay focused. God damn it. Um, uh, so this is actually a really stacked cast. This is this is HBO being kind of peak HBO. Not only is it a Debbie E. Kelly series, not only is Suzanne Beer directing it, and and she's a heavyweight in her own right, but you're you're you know it's a it's a miniseries starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, movie stars doing television. It's got Donald Sutherland for God's sakes. Do you ever have any kind of, I don't know that intimidation is the right word, but maybe you ever experience any kind of being starstruck when you step on set? I mean, you're going through Nicole Kimmons' mail. Does that ever sit there and like hit you at all? It did. I, I was starstruck admittedly from, from the start. The first scene that we shot was one of those playground scenes. And uh, this was, I think it ended up in episode one, but it's, it's, a, it's a stare down where Edgar and I have, where, where Nicole sees us on the playground and, uh, or the schoolyard, and she's unnerved, as she is repeatedly, by seeing our presence, you know, coming closer and closer into her world. That was the first scene that we shot, and it was just a very quick hello. I met her very briefly, but still, even among 50 other people, you know, among the, uh, the people on the playground, she towers over them and she just has this presence. I mean, not only the, the, the beauty and the, the Nicole Kidman-ness of her, but she just exudes, it's almost like you don't need lighting when, when she's on set. So I, I never really got beyond that. And then all of a sudden I'm having this stare down and, and uh, I, I couldn't believe I was even there. And I, I tried to stay in character, but I, I just was just like, how is this happening? It was <laughs> surreal. The more we shot and the more comfortable we got with each other, and I shouldn't say we got that comfortable because she remains in character almost the entire time. And our roles, as you see, are fairly antagonistic. And I was even given the heads up that she's, you know, she stays in character. So if she treats you oddly, it's because she's in character. And, and, and there were cases like that where, you know, there was a moment I, you know, she walked by and I said hello and she responded as if, I was Paula Rourke and, and she was Grace Fraser, which I thought was cool. And I, there were, it was a, many lessons for me as an actor. So I was in and out of being starstruck. I was uh, playing the role. It went in and out, but toward the end, I, I never really said I relaxed or, around her and, and uh, treated her. I, I wish I could, uh, even though she's very down to earth and, and gracious and, and very human, I, I wish I could say I, I uh, I relaxed around her, but I didn't. <laughs> I like your kidmanness. <laughs> we'll have to use that for sure. If you don't mind, we may have to use that on the podcast. It's a mouthful. Sure, absolutely. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she, she, she's time. very much in her kidmanness here. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think we have to. Well, we have such a hard time continuously calling her Nicole Kidman when normally on a podcast we would just call them Grace. You know, we call them their character name. And so every time we're like Nicole Kidman, because she's just Nicole Kidman. Like her right. kidmanness shines through all the time um, exactly there, there's also more i mean there's also more trouble though too because we had the same problem with hugh grant though yes and referring to the things that jonathan the character was doing and saying hugh grant was doing these things <laughs> we had to stop ourselves and be like no we can't yes. say hugh grant was doing those things yeah, right. that, hugh will, that will lead to trouble <laughs> yeah. most definitely yes <laughs> uh, join us for episode six yeah. when hugh grant joins us and yells at us for, for smudging his reputation exactly oh my goodness well having spent time on set with with the kidmanness and especially her staying staying in character was there any memorable moments for you working with all these different amazing actors sutherland gets me as well as soon as he was on screen i see i don't know that i would have thought franklin did something bad necessarily the character but as soon as sutherland's in that role i was like oh they're not going to throw a Sutherland in there and have Franklin just be like mm. a phone call buddy. Like, come on. He's got to play yeah. a bigger role than that. Even if not Franklin, Franklin's eyebrows. 
have definitely done yeah, something. They, they're in it. Amazing, right? Oh my gosh. They're amazing. So very, very wise. One interaction I had with him, and again, if I feel like if I say if I have a lot or a little, it might be a spoiler, but I can't say, you know, he and I became buddy buddy, but there was only really one moment where we interacted off screen and we were, our, our chairs were all set up on, on, on the side off stage. This was during the court scenes. A, a bit of, it was a bit of an indulgence, but I bought myself this nice leather binder for my scripts. And I, you know, I thought it was a little professional look and it, it, you know, it, it was where I put my scripts during the whole time. And I, I thought it looked great and it was on my chair and he came out and he looked at it and then he looked at me and he said, uh, my whole career I survived with plastic. He might as well have said my good man. <laughs> but he did not. But uh, um, the tone said, "My good man." But so that was my my. my In a year from now, when you're telling the story, he will have said, "My good man." I so. when he talks to Mendoza, he does say, "I'm sure you are, my good my boy." <laughs> oh yeah, that was that's that's his tone whenever he speaks, whether he's saying that or not. I love it. So I I uh, I I felt even smaller. But no, he, he's a good guy. He wasn't mean to uh, to mock me or anything. But it was just a, a clever moment. I love that. So thinking about The Undoing, I know we don't want to give away any spoilers, but we're only in episode two for our listeners. If you had to sum up The Undoing in three words, what might you tease our listeners with? A few people have thrown this out, Hitchcockian. That's an excellent one. That goes right up there with Kinmanness. Yeah. I like it. Kinmanness. Maybe I'm <laughs> known for the... And this is a compound adjective, so I um, maybe get away with it. Roller coaster like I like that. And uh, intriguing. Fantastic. I feel like this entire time I'm like, you know what, Mike, I am going to go with the idea that not one person did it, but this is layered more than one person's in on this one because there's just too many people who have too many good reasons to murder this woman. That's part of the ride. And that is all by design. I, I look at David e. Kelly and Susanna Beer as architects of a roller coaster. You are on rails and there's there are places they're going to take you and, and uh, you're on their ride. They conceive this and, and just go along for the ride. What you think you know, you don't. And what you think you know is there by design. Michael, we are just about out of time, but I, I want to take a little bit of a right turn detour only because I've been listening to it and it's uh, impacted me and I've really been enjoying it. So I want I want you to have some time to talk about it. Tell us about how your 2011 album, Songs of Valor and Hope, came about. I mean, you have a beautiful voice. If people don't know, they should go to Spotify or they should go buy it somewhere. They should go buy it on Apple Music and listen to it. It's worth the listen. It's 42 minutes of excellent music. But how did you pick the songs? How, how did making an album come about? You were already doing so many things. Uh, how did you fit, let's, let's record an album in here? And, and are you still pursuing the music career on the side at all? my intention having been an actor from the start I, I also I wanted to sing and, and my goal for a very long period of my life and actually still is I wanted to be in Les Miserables that was always a goal it's my favorite piece of entertainment of, of all time I learned to sing because I wanted to be in Les Miserables and I, I actually hired a voice teacher who was in the show and I learned to sing and, and I ended up learning to sing well because I was so focused on, on that goal but then I became a police officer, and, and one wouldn't think that there are opportunities to sing in the NYPD, but there are. We have a ceremonial unit because we have so many ceremonies for promotions and graduations and unfortunately memorials and, and, and funerals. So I started to become the NYPD's national anthem soloist. And then that branched out into, uh, I, I started singing for the National Police Officers Memorial and some other agencies. So I was always singing these songs at events, some patriotic, some funereal, and, and and leaning towards sad songs so you must you must like sad music if you like that album but I, I took all of those songs from that period 
singing for the ceremonial unit and I, and I put them on an album and it, it did surprisingly well when it came out in 2011. So I, I guess there's an audience who also has, I think it's the Irishman in me. I just, I have this, this love for, for sad music. Yeah, I mean, your your Bring Him Home, it hit me in a way that probably a version of it hasn't since Colm Wilkinson's original uh, wow. did. I thought, it, I thought it was uh, truly beautiful. And, and as oh ju- I mean, completely as an aside, I'm kind of a Hallelujah covers fanatic. Uh, I, I oh, listen God. to as many versions of Hallelujah as I can, and I'm always trying to keep rankings in my head of versions that I like, and I also thought that was beautiful. But your Bring Him Home, though, I, I thought was, uh, was truly epic, and I could have easily seen uh, Les Mis as a, as a top five musical favorite of mine going back to you know when I was a kid and so uh you know it it took me right back there oh thank you yeah no uh, for sure I mean do you do you I mean you're a New York guy one day theaters will reopen do you ever see yourself maybe doing a Broadway stint is that something that'd be interesting to you I would I would love it more than anything and and now that I'm retired because I could never really do theater um, I could I could do some you know film and tv while while being a police officer but I could never do theater because the time commitment but now that I'm retired, I, I am focusing solely on acting, and, and that's definitely something I see myself doing. Michael, you've been amazing. Thank you for giving us so much time and joining us tonight and, and letting our, vis- our visitors, our listeners know more things that are coming on with The Undoing and just some little little tidbits for them to take away with them. Can you tell me, how can we follow you on social media, and are there any other projects we should be watching for you in it? Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. I can be found on Twitter at, at Michael Devine, D-E-V-I-N-E, and I'm on Instagram at Michael P. Devine. And uh, yeah, my music's on uh, Amazon, iTunes, and Spotify, and uh, I've been working for the past 10 years on the next album, and it's finished. So I'm thinking uh, probably spring, summer, keep an eye out for that. Maybe we can have you back for Pod, at Pod Clubhouse and we could do like a little listening party, uh, something unrelated to The Undoing. We'll just yes. have a little music listening party. You could walk us through the tracks. Love it. I would love that. Awesome. I, is it going to original music? Is it going to be covers again or a mix? or? It's, it's covers again, but less maudlin as the last one. These are these are Broadway leanings and some some Celtic oh. leanings. It's as if Josh oh. Groban and the Irish tenors went to Broadway. Oh my God! I mean, <laughs> you're it. you're you're talking my sauce, Michael. You're talking nice. it. I mean, I, God, you know, I mean, Caroline knows she has to live with me singing Broadway songs all the time. <laughs> so awesome. I'll send you the I'll send you the link. It's because it's done. I'll send I'll send you a little hidden link. See what you think. Oh boy. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you are fantastic. People should definitely check out The Undoing. Watch your role as uh, Detective O'Rourke on The Undoing every Sunday night on HBO. They should go buy your album, Songs of Valor and Hope. They should go watch Limitless. God damn it. Let's bring that show back. We need more Limitless in our <laughs> life. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on Pod Clubhouse. Thanks for joining us here on Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks. Just want to give a big thank you to Michael Devine again for coming and joining with us. Uh, we put it together actually pretty quickly uh, so we could get it into tonight's episode, and it was a blast talking to him. That's going to do it for us on this episode of Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us five stars. Five stars only, people.
Do We Unnerve You? The Undoing Podcast is a Pod Clubhouse original production, recorded, produced, and edited at Pod Clubhouse Studios. For more information on Pod Clubhouse, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com or on social media at Pod Clubhouse.